Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. As society and the church gets overrun with sexual issues, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, and even end-of-life issues, is there anything that the church can do, is there anything that you can do to present a positive case for Christianity rather than just coming across as the church lady saying, no, 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 you ought not do that, you ought not do that. Is there any way to really give a positive case? And what really underlies, uh, what philosophy underlies the sexual revolution and all the issues that flow from it? There's probably nobody better to talk to about this than uh, Nancy Piercy, and uh, we should have had Nancy on the program before. She's written several excellent books. Uh, probably the first book I read from Nancy uh, was back in 2004 called Total Truth. And the new book she's written is called Love Thy Body. And uh, Love Thy Body traffics off the same insights that were put forth in Total Truth. Now, if you don't know Nancy, she's won several gold medallion awards, uh, which is an award you win if you write a great Christian book, and she's written several uh, great Christian books. Uh, She is a professor at uh, Houston Baptist University, Uh, so she teaches apologetics down there, and uh, she's the editor-of-large of of the Piercy Report, which you can find find online, Uh, kind of a Christian drudge report, I would put it that way. And uh, she's a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. She's also taught at Biola uh, and several other universities. She actually came out of uh, Fra- uh, Francis Schaeffer's uh, ministry in Switzerland. Maybe we could talk to her a little bit, a little bit about that. Uh, she was the co-author of the famous book uh, with Chuck Colson called How Should We Live or How, How Now Shall We Live. Uh, that's another great book that I've read. So it's a great pleasure to have Nancy on the program with us. Nancy, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Another great book, Love Thy Body. Just finished it today. And uh, this this book couldn't be more timely uh, because these are the issues that are just assaulting society and assaulting the church. And let me just... Start out, Nancy, by asking the question that I, I love to ask of people who've written a new book: Why this book, Love Thy Body, and why now? Well, this one is one of those books where you almost—it um, almost speaks for itself because these are certainly the issues that, that are in the headlines every day. They are the the watershed moral issues of our day. We are constantly being barraged in the news by stories on. Uh, sexuality, abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism. In fact, this was the first book I've ever written where every day it was something in the news that applied to what I was writing. And also, the secular ethic is being imposed to all the social institutions, to academia, mm. public schools, Hollywood, mm. private corporations, the law, and so on. So it's not as if we have a choice in some ways 
about whether we're going to accept the secular orthodoxy. It's being required of us. So it's very important that we get a handle on how to respond to them, and not just to respond uh, in a reactive way to the latest controversy or the latest breaking news story. But how do you get below the surface? How do you get down to the underlying worldview? And that's what I do in my book, Love Thy Body. I'm, I'm trying to get beyond the trendy slogans and help people to understand the secular ethic that, that underlies them, that, that's driving all of these issues, so that people can engage more intelligently and, and more compassionately with their secular friends and neighbors. And the key, it seems to me, to the entire book, similar to the key to the book Total Truth that you wrote in 2004, the key is the fact that uh, the secular world seems to artificially separate or artificially divide reality into two stories. Can you explain what that is and how that, uh, how this two-story approach has caused so much pain and suffering in, in our society? Yeah, um, you know, I used to be an agnostic before I became a Christian at Libri, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And so I can kind of explain this from the inside, you know, the inside of right. perspective. Um, but Francis Schaeffer used to write about the uh, division in the very concept of truth. Because it's the concept of truth, it, it affects everything, and that's why it's so important. The people in traditionally have thought that they were natural truths, truths about the natural world, and there were moral truths. There were truths about the moral realm, and that these were united. There was one single universe, and therefore there's one single truth about the universe. But with the rise of modern science, many people in the West decided that the only really reliable form of knowledge is empirical facts. Well, if that's true, what happens to things like morality and theology? Well, you can't stuff them into a test tube or study them under a microscope. So many people decided that they weren't really truths after all. They're just personal values. Those are your mm. personal preferences. You know, those arise out of your experience. They may give you a sense of meaning, but they're not really a matter of true or false at all. They're just subjective. And so this, this is, uh, in, in, sec in the secular world, this is called the fact-value split, that facts mm. are objective, but values are merely private. And mm. uh, Schaefer used to use the image of two stories in a building. The facts are in the lowest story, and values are in the upper story. And it's that fact-value split is, in fact, the the, um, the theme of my book, Total Truth. It's helping people to recognize that this has become the greatest barrier to presenting Christian truth today, because when we say Christian truth, people no longer hear the word truth. And this is one of the biggest challenges we face in, in communicating the gospel today. So in Love Thy Body, I show how it now affects also the concept of the person a human being, and how that underlies all of the moral issues that we face today. As with so much put out by the left, this very bifurcation or this very divide between empirical facts and values is self-defeating, as you point out, Nancy. I mean, for them to say that values are just a matter of, uh, of personal preference and that facts and empirical things are the ones that are really true— well, that whole philosophy right there is not an empirical fact. It's not an empirical fact to say that uh, values are subjective and facts are are just that, are, are facts. That that itself is a value. <laughs> it's scientism right. all over again, as you point out. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I think one way to point out the the flaw in this in this kind of theory is it doesn't meet its own standard. It 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 says that empirical facts are 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 empirical facts, but that itself is a value judgment itself. Uh, so pointing that out as you do in Total Truth and you point out in Love Thy Body is so critical. And what I like here about Love Thy Body is you're trying not just to point out the fact that uh, these things, these uh, issues, these secular positions are bad, but you're trying to give a positive case for the Christian worldview. And you say that loving your body or love thy body is what Christianity is all about. Explain that. Yeah, well, let's take the, the um, one area that's maybe more obvious, like abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, many bioethicists today essentially have divided the human being in half. They say that the fetus is human from conception. The, the data from genetics and DNA is just overwhelming. So there is really no bioethicist today who denies that, this, that the fetus is human from conception. Right. Well, so then why don't we grant it legal protection? They say, well, it hasn't become a person yet. And that's a value judgment right there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so there's a distinction. If you can be mm-hmm. human at one point, but you're not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two separate things. And as long as it's just a human, quote-unquote, merely human, then it's just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason, used for research, tinkered with genetically, harvested for organs, and disposed with the other medical waste. You see how this fact-value dichotomy, friends, impacts these big issues? We're talking to Nancy Piercy. Her new book is Love Thy Body. You need to get the book. It explains all these issues at an easy-to-understand level and how you can interact with others on it. I'm Frank Turk. Back in two minutes. Don't go away. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're never going to hear this on NPR. We're talking about Love Thy Body, a terrific new book, says Robert P. George of Princeton University, written by Nancy Piercy, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. And uh, as we were talking about before the break, this fact-value dichotomy or split that the secularists engage in is A, self-defeating, and B, just goes against all common sense if you really think about it. And uh, Nancy, before the break, you were talking about this fact-value split causes people to say, well, it's a fact that an unborn child is a human being, but we're going to say it's not a person, so it's not valuable. Can you unpack that a little bit further for us? Right. It's actually, there's a name for it. This is called personhood theory. And it is an outworking of the fact-value split because uh, to use, if we want to use that two-story metaphor mm-hmm. um, that Schaefer introduced, so the lower story is the realm of facts. So to be biologically human is in the lower story because that's something you can know scientifically. Mm-hmm. But to be a person is an ethical concept. So that's defined by whatever the bioethicist values, and it's in the upper story. The trouble, of course, is that there's no scientific evidence for this this breakdown of the human being. That the the change from a piece of matter, you know, just merely human, merely a biological organism, to being a person with viable rights is a momentous change, mm. and it it has to be something that we could detect scientifically and objectively. But there's no transformative point that science can detect. So the concept of personhood is purely subjective purely arbitrary, and 
The secular concept of a person, therefore, is, in fact, a personal value. And when laws are passed, they are imposing their personal values on all the rest of us. Yeah, and as you point out in the book, there's no neutral position on this issue or any of these other issues. To say that an unborn child is not a person is basically to say that an unborn child has the same value as a mosquito, right? I mean, you could just kill it. (laughs) So that's not a neutral position. That is a position that says unborn children have no inherent value at all. Well, you need to make a case for that. It seems ironic to me, Nancy, that many of these people making these cases are atheists and they're materialists. So if they're materialists and they see that an unborn child genetically is a human being, how do they justify making a value judgment when by their own admission or their their own philosophy, their own ideology says all that exists are material? So why would they even say there's a there's a value associated with this. Why wouldn't they just say, if it materially it's a human being, we ought to protect it? Yeah, that's a good point, because um, we, I don't think we really understand this unless we pull it back to its worldview sources. You know, the, our view of the body ultimately rests on our view of nature. And the secular worldview starts with the Darwinian assumption that nature is a product of blind, undirected forces. And as a result, they see the body as just a physical organism driven by physical urges and instincts. So in other words, as long as the fetus is merely human, merely a biological organism, it's just a collection of cells and tissues with no higher value, no higher dignity than any other chance collection of cells. So we tend to think of materialism as a philosophy that places high value on the material world, because after all, it claims matter is all that exists. But in reality, it places a very low value on the material world because it's purely particles in motion with no higher purpose, no higher meaning. And so uh, here's an example from another issue, from homosexuality. You undoubtedly, you know, the the very outspoken lesbian Camille Paglia. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... um, who, by the way, often says some good things. Who does? <laughs> yes. in, fact, in fact, listen to this. She is actually very logical. That's what mm-hmm. I like about her. She yes. says, here's how she defends homosexuality. On the one hand, she says, nature has made us male and female. Nature has made us heterosexual. Nature has made us a sexually reproducing species. So she has nothing, you know, she has nothing to say for uh, gender being a uh, postmodern social construct. Mm. But then, she says, why should we let nature define us? Because after all, nature is a product of blind material forces. Why should we take our identity from nature? Why should we take our moral cues from nature? Why not, to use her word, why not defy nature? And, and here's the money quote. She says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Mm. So there is the logic. If our, pro- our bodies are the product of blind material forces, they convey no moral message, give no clue to identity, they have no inherent purpose that we're obligated to respect. And this is where the Christian can come in with a much higher, much more positive message, because we say we respect nature as a good gift from God. And that's why the Christian ethic always takes into account the facts of biology, whether they're addressing abortion, the scientific facts about when life begins, or addressing things like sexuality, the facts about sexual differentiation 
and reproduction. So at the root of all of these moral issues is the question, what kind of cosmos do we live in? Mm. Are we the products of blind material forces, or are we the handiwork of a personal God whose bodies reflect his loving purpose? Isn't it uh, interesting that Camille Pagula, though, would also say, because I saw her say this in a big YouTube interaction, that it's child abuse to try and give children hormones to change their gender. But if a child, just like an adult, is just a collection of atoms, why would she suggest that a child has a right not to be changed in this way by their parents? That's a good question. Um, She's also, did you know she's out there now saying that she's transgender? She's now claiming that she's always been transgender. (laughs) She she always wants to be on the cutting edge. Right, yes. But you're right. The logic of the transgender narrative is is really the same. It's saying um, it's the same denigration of the body. Mm-hmm. The transgender narrative says your biological sex has nothing to do with your gender. Or they, a BBC documentary put it: the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. And of course, who wins that war? Who wins is the mind. So as a result, kids down to kindergarten are being taught that their body is irrelevant to their identity, which is incredibly demeaning to the body. Schools are using cartoons as something called the um, gender unicorn. Yeah, that was big here in Charlotte, and uh, mm-hmm. I see you have it right here in your book. And by the way, we're talking to Nancy Piercy. Her book is called Love Thy Body. You need to get this book. Yeah, I'll go, go a little bit more about the gender unicorn. It's It's amazing. Uh, to me, Nancy, that they have to use a being that doesn't exist to try, to try and get people to believe that that genders are fake as well <laughs> in a and unicorn. That fake and, and that they have nothing to do with their body. You know, mm-hmm. the main message of the gender unicorn is that these are all distinct. There's your, your, there's your biological sex, there's your gender identity, there's your romantic attachment, there's your attraction there's your sexual attraction, and they're all separate. They can all be different. They can all be in contradiction to one another. You are a collection of disparate, disconnected, contradictory bits and pieces. In other words, it's incredibly fragmenting to the human personality. It's incredibly um, self-alienating. It's creating inner conflicts. Uh, I happened to run into an article mm, two days ago, and it was written by a 14-year-old. She lived as a boy for three years. She, was, she thought she was transgender, lived as a boy for three years before reclaiming her identity as a girl. And she wrote an article where she says, it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And I thought, wait a minute, that's, that's my book. That's right. <laughs> that's my that's title. Right. And I thought that was amazing that she was able to see that the, she too, the 14-year-old, was able mm. to see that the, the solution to the transgender issue is to learn to love your body. Mm. And that's what the book is about. Nancy Piercy, my guest today, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. It's interesting to me as well, Nancy, the, the incoherence, the logical incoherence of the entire sexual revolution. Because just 10 minutes, 10 minutes ago, the people behind the sexual revolution were saying, we're born this way, and now they're saying they can go to bed as a man and wake up as a woman. I mean... Is is there any logical coherence to this at all? Well, you're right. That is illogical, and there's been a conflict within the homosexual movement itself over 
what's the best message for them to to adopt? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And many of them are now saying, well, we adopted the message of, of we can't help but this is who we are as a defensive measure, you know, to to advance our, our movement politically. But if you read the theorists, of the, you know the postmodern gender theorists of the movement, they're all postmodern. They're all saying it's the mind that counts, not the body. Your that your um, you know just it's your identity, your sense of self, your desires. And, and again, this is a this is another example of where we can turn the tables. The homosexual narrative is very negative and very harmful. Because it demeans the body. And think of it this way. No one really denies at the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's the way the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when someone adopts a same-sex identity, in essence, they're contradicting that design. Implicitly, they're saying, why should the structure of my body inform my identity. Why should my biological sex as male or female guide my moral choices? And so this is profoundly disrespectful for you as a body. Again, it creates that inner conflict, the idea that somehow we're made of conflicting, contradictory bits and pieces. It leads to inner fragmentation. It leads to inner conflict. And in, in Love Thy Body, in my book, Love Thy Body, I tell several stories uh, it's full of stories to help flesh out these themes. And one of them is um, about people who found their, who found healing from that inner conflict. They were, uh, Jean Lloyd, for example, is a woman who writes, uh, she, she wrote a, she wore a tuxedo to her high school Christmas dance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, as a defiant symbol of her lesbianism, lived for many years as a lesbian. And then she said, I began to trust that God knew the truth of my identity more than I did, that he wrote his image on my body as female, and that he designed my sexuality for my good. And I love the way she puts it. She says, to my own great surprise, a flicker of heterosexual desire emerged, and today she's married with two children. What was the key change? She accepted her body as a good gift from God. Our feelings can change and often do. Yeah, there's a positive message right there. And I want to talk more about the positive message we as Christians can present to people about this rather than just saying, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And Nancy Piercy does that in her new book, Love Thy Body. You need to pick it up. Great work. Very relevant. It's like reading the newspaper except with somebody who's intelligent. Back in two. Just got back from Eastern Kentucky University. Did I don't have enough faith to be an atheist there. Great group of folks there at Eastern Kentucky. Well, in this coming week on Wednesday, February 7th, I'll be at Indiana University Southeast. That's in New Albany, Indiana, 7 p.m. Doing I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Then Thursday, we'll be at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, uh, at 7.30, and uh, that day we're doing a reveal conference in New Albany, Indiana. You can check all this out on our website, crossexamine.org. In fact, we've got several universities coming up. Um, in addition to that, I'll be at a church in Gastonia, North Carolina, not far from Charlotte, on the 11th. And then on February 15th, University of Akron 
And on February 20th, University of Tennessee, February 21st, East Tennessee State University, uh, and several more coming up in March. And we're doing all that uh, on the college campus because so many people on a college campus don't get a defense of Christianity and a Christian worldview. So come out for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. All of those events are free. They're open to the public. Check out our website, crossexamined.org. Click on Events. You'll see my calendar there. You can also download our app. Two words in the App Store, Cross Examined. They'll all be up there. And by the way, if you can't get to any of those places, we stream all of those live over our Facebook page, crossexamined.org Facebook page. Like that Facebook page, and on those evenings, you should be able to watch it live, including all the Q&A. Uh, so, and we get a lot of questions about sexual issues like we're talking about today with uh, my friend Nancy Piercy, her new book, Love Thy Body. Now, that's a very positive message, Nancy, Love Thy Body. And toward the end of the book, you talk about the fact that you don't want this to be a culture war. You want this to be a rescue mission. How can Christians give a more positive message rather than just, you know, the old church lady, no, you ought not be doing this, no, you ought not be doing that? Well, I think to a large extent we need to re- rediscover our own heritage it is true that Christians, and we talked about the uh, fact-value split and how there's sort of mm-hmm. an upper-lower story divide. Well, that affects Christians as well. We just call it the sacred-secular split. And we have a tendency to think uh, the sacred realm, church, Bible study, prayer meeting, that that's good and important, and that the secular realm, our normal life, including our sexual life, is, is not so important or not so good or, you know, not, you know, inherently, inherently maybe not so valuable. Mm. And we need to overcome that, that split in our own thinking, um, before we can have a positive message to bring to the, to the secular world. And I think one of the best ways to rediscover it is to go back to church history, to the early church. The early church actually faced something very similar. They, the early church grew up in a realm, a, a culture that also had a very low view of the body. The early church started out in a, in a culture permeated with philosophies like Platonism and Manichaeism and uh, Gnosticism. that mm-hmm. all treated the material world as evil and corrupt. In fact, they all described the body as a prison and that the goal of salvation was to escape from the body. Right. In fact, Gnosticism taught that the world was so evil, it must be the creation of an evil god. In Gnostic cosmology, there are several levels of spiritual beings, and it was the lowest level deity, an evil god, who created the material world. So in this context, the claims of Christianity were revolutionary. It teaches that matter was not created by an evil, low-level God, but by the ultimate deity, the supreme deity, and that the material world is therefore intrinsically good. And in Genesis, we are told repeatedly that it was good. And An even greater scandal in that historical context was the Incarnation. The idea that God himself, that supreme deity, entered into the material world and took on a human body. So the Incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the body. And at the end of time, the Apostles' Creed affirms there will be a resurrection of the body. 
along with mm-hmm. a new heavens and a new earth. So this is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There's nothing like it in any other philosophy or religion. And as Christians, we need to recover our heritage and realize how how special, how unique, and how healing and how life-giving and attractive this view really is. And in fact, you talk at quite length in the book, and again, we're talking Nancy Piercy, new book, Love Thy Body. You have a chapter in here, I think it's in the chapter on homosexuality, I was reading it today, uh, where you talk about in ancient Greece and Rome, to a certain extent, homosexuality and even pedophilia was widely accepted. And you go on to talk about, yet even in those cultures, they never said that uh, marriage could be between two of the same sex because they recognized that marriage between a man and a woman was necessary to perpetuate and stabilize society. But you also point out in that section, Nancy, about how important the Christian worldview became to women because, well, explain that. Why, why did the Christian worldview liberate and protect women, unlike the sexual revolution worldview, which, which we're experiencing now, not quite as bad as Rome and Greece, but we're heading that way. Why is the Christian worldview so affirming of women? Well, let me just say that, historically speaking, as a pattern, an abortion culture is a culture that does not treat women with value and dignity. They do not, it does not treat women's biological ability to just gestate and bear children as a wonderful capacity to be protected, to be cherished. Instead, it treats women's biology as a, as a liability, a disadvantage a disability that should be suppressed uh, mm. with with toxic chemicals and deadly devices to kill the life within her. Now, you know, I used to be an agnostic, and I, I only became a Christian in college, so I spent several years as an agnostic, and I sensed even then that this was very demeaning to women. Um, mm. I did. I was not for abortion because I felt like it was an uh, an incursion into what it was a natural, healthy process. And that's what we see historically as well. Historically, women were drawn to the Christian church because of its biblical ethic that um, abortion and infanticide were very common in ancient Rome and Greece. Uh, and abortion was a big killer of women at that time, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very understood that... Um, Women, wives were for, this was a common saying at the time, wives were for legal heirs, but prostitutes were for pleasure. It was totally expected that men would have sex, not only with their wives, but uh, most of all with slaves. Most infidelity was with slaves, because slaves could not say no at the the cost of their lives. And not only women slaves, but, but also men, male, both male and female slaves, and both adults and minors. Children were also considered fair game for, for sexual activity. Uh, brothels were very common. In fact, um, uh, the, the tax records of ancient Rome show that taxation on, on prostitution was a major form of income for the government because it was so common. Uh, and and um, promiscuity was even divinely sanctioned. If you look at the Roman gods and the Greek gods, they will often uh, practice both adultery and rape. So, 
when the church fathers began writing sermons, urging husbands not to have sex with their slaves and prostitutes, when the when the Bible writers said, you know, you are to channel all of your erotic interest into your spouse, into your wife, this was huge. This was a, a, a major, major force in elevating the dignity, the status of both marriage and of women in particular, wives in particular. And so uh, ancient historians often say that the reason Christianity was so appealing to women is that women in the church had much higher status, much higher dignity, uh, much more economic security than they did in the secular world of the time. In fact, you write on page 189, we're talking to Nancy Piercy here, new book, Love Thy Body. You say the moral rule of monogamy essentially means to each his own. A wife does not have to compete with others for her husband's love. No wonder women were especially attracted to Christianity. Christianity took then over the Roman Empire and flipped everything on its head. If it wasn't for Christianity, we would probably still have... Uh, the kind of ethic that they had in Rome and Greece, where you had polygamy, you had, or you had uh, pedophilia, as you said, you had uh, uh, prostitution everywhere. A man was not expected to be monogamous with his wife. Christianity changed all that. So, contrary to what you hear in our popular culture, how negative Christianity is toward women, it's actually the opposite. That's really true. And unfortunately, Nancy, we we appear to be sliding back into that very negative sexual ethic that uh, occurred prior to the advent of Christianity. And so your book, Love Thy Body, is is a way to try and recover the proper Christian sexual ethic. And that's for the good of everybody. And we've got to be better at, I think, communicating that this is for the good of everybody. A lot of people don't want it. A lot of people don't like it. But I think also a lot of people don't understand it. They don't understand how important the body is and how you're not bifurcated between your material self and your your immaterial self, as as the world wants us to uh, to believe. Let me ask you one more thing about abortion. We just about a minute and a half ago before the break. Many abortion advocates say that if you're against abortion, you're waging a war on women. But you say it abortion wages a war on humanity itself. Unpack that. Right. In other words, abo- abortion lowers the value of all human life, and that's going to include women. We can't think that it's going to stay with just uh, the fetus. As soon as you start to say human life does not have value solely and strictly because it's human, as soon as you start making distinctions and saying, well, some humans have value and some don't, that's going to affect other areas of life as well. We know what happens. Well, historically, we know what happens when certain groups are pronounced to be less, you know, non-persons, less than fully persons. We've had... Uh, you know, lots of historically, the clans and tribes and nations, we've seen people choose some group and say, well, that they're not fully human. Well, what do they do? They immediately oppress, exploit, and even kill them. And so it's very dangerous grounds as soon as you begin to make distinctions and say some humans are not fully persons. Where we're seeing it, first of all, of course, um, is in euthanasia and assisted suicide. A, a, a Christian man wrote to me just recently saying, so what's wrong with assisted suicide? He no longer understood what the biblical view was and, and why it's so important. But it's really just the abortion argument extended or in reverse. So if bioethicists defend abortion 
saying anyone who has not achieved a prescribed level of cognitive awareness is not a person. They defend euthanasia by saying if you lose certain cognitive abilities, you're no longer a person. Right. It's crazy. We're talking to Nancy Piercy. Her book, Love Thy Body, You Need to Get. And we're going to talk a little bit about transgenderism right after the break, so you don't want to miss that. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network back in two. Christianity says, love thy body. Ironically, secular worldviews do not say that. Don't love your body. Your body's nothing. You get to decide what your body is. Now, who's really anti-science? Is it the Christians or the secularists? Seems to me it's the secularists who are anti-science. Anyway, we're talking to Nancy Piercy. Her new book is Love Thy Body. And Nancy, we need to talk a little bit about this new phenomenon, relatively new phenomenon, at least uh, at least in terms of its uh, of its megaphone in the uh, media now, and that has to do with transgenderism. Uh, and you write, I have a whole chapter on transgenderism and love thy body. But there is one aspect of this that a lot of people will point to, and they'll talk about intersexed people, people that appear to be born with either two sets of genitalia or unclear what they are, uh, who are such people and how many of them uh, actually are born in, in that kind of condition as a percentage? Do you know? Um, yeah, well, yes. Um, first of all, what what is it? It's people who are born where um, some there's some ambiguity, some anomaly um, in their in their genitals, and so doctors sometimes are not even sure what the newborn sex is. And they used to be called hermaphrodites. Mm-hmm. And the standard treatment was to uh, just assign a sex, say, well, this baby looks a little more like a girl or a little bit more like a boy, and then administer hormones and plastic surgery um, to help the child look like a normal girl or boy. But that's not where the culture war is raging. It's not really over intersex per se. But the existence of intersex people is being used to disrupt the male-female binary. In many cases, people are using the existence of intersex people to say, see, there's not just male and female. This is a whole range of people in between. Mm. Now, how do you define intersex? How many people there are? It's very, very uh, minuscule unless you define it broadly. You know, in order to disrupt the male-female female binary, some people are are defining it extremely broadly so that if you, if you have even a slight difference um, in, your, in your chromosomes, they will they will include you under the intersex label, even if to all external appearances you look like a normal male or a normal female. We all have we all have variations in our in our biology. So, the, mm. but the real question here then is, does it support the disruption of the male female binary? The answer is no. When you're talking about intersex people, you're talking about people who do have a genuine physical biological, medical issue, just like somebody born with a weak heart or somebody born with um, you know, some, other, some, some other physical problem, some, some weakness, some, some proneness to disease or whatever. It's a genuine physical problem. In transgenderism, what that movement is saying is it's a psychological issue. You are totally normal physically. You have all the normal physical uh, structures, uh, chromosomes, genes, and so on of a boy or a girl. 
But your mind is what is at war with your body. It's your mind that is, is, is saying, but I'm really a girl or I'm really a boy. So that they're, they're really opposite things. One is genuinely biological. The other is purely psychological. And so it does not support the idea that gender is a spectrum, although that's how it's used in, in, the, in the culture war rhetoric. So what we need to say, what we need to say is, is to bring it back to, no, we are, as Christians, we support our, the, our biological sex and that we want to see people in harmony with their biological sex, people in congruence, in tune with their sex so that they have this internal harmony. In fact, you write on page 219 of Love Thy Body, you say, if you've wondered where the trans narrative got the phrase assigned sex at birth, it is borrowed from the treatment of intersex babies. The term assigned may be useful in the tiny percentage of cases where a newborn's genitals are genuinely ambiguous, but it makes no sense to apply it to transgender people who are clearly biological, male or female, at birth. That's from Nancy Piercy's book, uh, Love Thy Body. In fact, for all, for all these people out there, Nancy's saying that uh, my mind tells me what my biology is. Um, it's that seems to me to be a practically self-defeating position as well, because if they're saying that I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa, they're admitting they already know what their biology is. <laughs> so to say it's it's completely based on my mind is is contradicted by the point that they're saying I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. That's why you have to come back to this two-story dualism. Essentially, what mm -hmm. they're saying is you can be biologically male and psychologically female. It is mm. a very, like you said earlier, you used the word bifurcation. It's a right. very bifurcated, it's a very divided concept of the human being that somehow you can be psychologically a man while biologically a woman. So, in fact, I, 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 go, I read some of the uh, Twitter feeds from these groups now, and uh -huh. uh, transgender people are now saying the word, the word biological sex is a hate term. Oh, they don't want to be reminded of their biological sex. They want to be able to assign, uh, determine their gender strictly apart from their biological sex. And that's, again, where we're coming out with a more positive view of the body, ironically, than the transgender movement. So to extend that logic to, say, anorexia, which is also a mismatch between psychology and biology, if you were to tell an anorexic that they really are skinny when, in fact, they think they're fat, would, that be, would, they, would they term that a hate term? Uh, to, say that, <laughs> to tell the truth about somebody's physical appearance or, or physical condition? It, it seems to me, Nancy, this is completely incoherent, what's going on here. It only makes sense if you really grasp that two-story dualism, that they have totally, they've totally divided biology from gender. And there is a strict, you know, a thick black line between them. If you read the gender mm -hmm. theorists like Judith Butler, Foucault, these, mm -hmm. uh, the people who are considered the founders of, of queer theory, you know, and mm -hmm. homosexual gender theory, they will say, you cannot even know the body. Okay, not only is gender a social construct, you know, we, we've, we're familiar with that. But many feminists argued against the postmodern view because they said, wait a minute, we're arguing for women's rights because we're women. If you That's can't right. determine what a woman is, you can't have women's rights. That's right. We need yeah. to value the body. And so Judith Butler, the postmodern thinker, comes back and says, well, how do we even know what the body is? After all, 
You cannot talk about the body without using language, and our language is defined by our culture, and therefore even the body is a social construct. And so in that way, they just dismiss all all the data, all the evidence from biology. Right, but if it's all a social... If it's all social construct, then there's no right to anything because it's simply made up by society. So if society decides that transgenderism is not a right, then oh well, that's just that's that's a problem for them. That's that's a good point, and that's um, I deal with that in the last chapter of Love Thy mm-hmm. Body, and that is once you de- detach bio- your your self, your sense of self from biology, then who's going to decide? Well, ultimately, who's going to decide is the state. So, in these movements, what's really what we have to pe- help people to realize is that pre-political rights are at stake. Most of our pre-political rights are rooted in biology. I mean, think of right. abortion. Life itself used to be a pre-political right. The state did not invent it. The state did not uh, create it. The Just state recognized really recognized it. you yeah. had a right to life because you're biologically part of the human race. Right, but how could the how did the state legalize abortion then? Only by deciding that some biological humans are not persons. So the state has claimed the right to decide, without regard to biology, who has a legal right to life. Or take marriage. Obviously, marriage was a pre-political right that was based in the biological fact of reproduction. But the only way the state could treat same-sex couples, the same as opposite-sex couples, was to deny biology and to define marriage as an emotional commitment, which is what Mm. the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision. So what has the state done? It's decided it has the right to decide without any regard for biology which relationships count as marriage. Mm. And the same, as you know, as you're saying now with the uh, transgender issue, your gender used to follow metaphysically on your biological sex, but the only way the state can treat a trans woman, that is somebody born male, the same as a biological woman, is to redefine gender without regard to biology. And that's why we're getting laws and policies imposing, uh, imposed on us, telling us who we must call he and she. Mm. So, the, and the next step, I've been reading the uh, homosexual activists, uh, and they say the next step is parenthood, because in a same-sex couple, at least one parent is not biologically related to any of the children that they have. So, the only way the state can treat same-sex parents the same as opposite-sex parents is to redefine parenthood without regard to biology, and you will be a parent to your child only by permission of the state. In fact, you write about that happening in Alberta, Canada already. They can't refer they can't refer to people as uh, mothers and fathers, just parents now. I mean, uh, Nancy, I wish we had more time. We're just running out of time here. This is such a good book that I think people are just going to have to get it and read it and heed it and apply it. The book is called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Nancy, tell people where they can find you on the web. Right. Uh, I have a website, nancypiercy.com. Uh, the only thing to keep in mind is Piercy has an E in it. So it's P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. So it's nancypiercy.com or piercyreport.com. Piercyreport.com. That's a great news source with a, with a, edited by a Christian. So that's a good thing. Your husband. 
So, right. and I know you're a part of that as well. So, Nancy, it's been a pleasure having you on. And thanks, thanks so much for writing this book and doing what you're doing. You're also down at HBU, Houston Baptist University, great apologetics uh, program there. So thanks so much, Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excellent book. Love Thy Body. You also want to pick up uh, Total Truth when you're looking at books from Nancy Piercy. Great stuff. She's got some other books as well. Don't forget, friends, uh, in uh, the coming weeks, in fact, next week, I'm going to be, as I say, at uh, the University of Louisville, also uh, Indiana University Southeast, uh, Indiana University Southeast, February 7th and February 8th. University of Louisville. I hope to see you there. Check out our website, and we're streaming that on Facebook Live. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.